Today, we need the correct mix of voices, ambition, and action. The rapidly changing climate is sounding an alarm to the world to step up on adaptation, to address loss and damage, and to act now. Uh, we've signed a climate convention. We've asked others to join us. Most of the observed increase in temperatures is very likely due to the observed increase in anthropogenic GHG concentrations. Our world, my friends, stands at a fork in the road. And if we act now, and we act together, we can protect our precious planet. Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania and recording from COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Over the two weeks of COP, I'm holding short conversations with experts from the University of Pennsylvania on a number of priority issues that are being discussed at this year's Global Climate Change Conference. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Scott Moore, director of the Penn Global China Program. Scott's work focuses on China, climate change, and international relations. We'll be talking about developments relating to China here at COP. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Andy. It's great to be here. Now, you have just published a book on China and sustainability that I wanted to ask you about before we have our conversation. Absolutely. So the book focuses on what I think is a rapidly changing part of China's role in the world. And that is actually that although we're used to thinking of China primarily as uh, an economic player, the world's second largest economy, uh, it's also uh, become uh, one of the, the leading uh, players when it comes to addressing uh, global challenges like climate change as the world's largest emitter. Uh, and that is something we're seeing in spades here uh, at COP27. And the book is really about trying to explain uh, how and why that shift uh, takes place with China becoming a critical player in uh, sustainability as well as more traditional areas like economics and what that means for countries like the United States. Okay, could you give us a sense of how China's role at this COP is shaping up compared with past years? So just to kind of give a, a brief overview of what that looked like in the past, for the first uh, really uh, almost 20 years of these climate conferences, there was a pretty sharp and deep divide between uh, developed and developing countries. And China positioned itself pretty firmly in uh, uh, solidarity with other developing countries. And it was uh, an influential voice within uh, something called the G77, um, which is the largest uh, kind of caucus or grouping of developing countries within uh, the UN climate talks. In 2014-2015, though, you saw a really significant shift in China's position where um, it agreed uh, through several joint uh, statements and declarations with the United States uh, to acknowledge its uh, uh, distinctive role uh, as the world's largest emitter. And China became the world's largest emitter in the early 2000s. And it agreed to take some actions that were uh, more ambitious than those uh, agreed by uh, other developing countries, in particular, uh, to take steps to um, uh, peak and eventually reduce its greenhouse gas emissions um, independent of uh, direct uh, pledges of financial assistance and technology transfer from richer countries, which had been the position of developing countries before that. 
Um, what you've seen at this conference of the parties, which is, is new and to me very interesting, um, is that uh, you're starting to see some pressure from other developing countries uh, for China, which in addition to being uh, the largest emitter is the second largest economy to increase its support for adaptation, uh, as well as what's known as loss and damage, which is essentially compensation uh, for uh, the effects of climate change to countries that have been uh, heavily impacted. Um, so that pressure is new. And what it kind of signals um, is that there may be some widening divides uh, among uh, the developing countries that had historically kind of functioned more as a block. Um, so it's a little bit early to see, um, you know, what this trend looks like uh, and what direction it'll take, but it is a new trend and it's very interesting that has some potential uh, to reshape uh, the, the politics and, and dynamics of these negotiations. As you've just begun to talk about, uh, the Group of 77 and China advocated for loss and damage finance to be included on the COP agenda. It has, in fact, been included at COP for the first time here in Sharm el-Sheikh. To me, this it's, it's sort of an awkward situation, though. China is both a developing country and at the same time, it's the world's leading emitter of GHGs by far. That's right. Uh, and in fact, uh, China's emissions uh, are so large um, that uh, they're now in kind of annual uh, uh, total uh, terms, they're twice as large as the United States, uh, even though on a per capita basis, they're about uh, half uh, those of the United States. Um, but they're uh, so enormous um, that uh, and have been so large uh, uh, since the start of the 21st uh, century that you're actually uh, seeing China's emissions so far uh, uh, approach about 13% of uh, total historical emissions uh, since uh, the uh, advent of the Industrial Revolution, where uh, developed uh, economies uh, uh, contribute uh, somewhere closer to 20%. So the gap, even in total cumulative historical terms, has started to uh, to shrink. Um, and that really underscores, as you said, um, that China's in a little bit of a special category, um, both as uh, uh, the largest uh, emitter, but also uh, the largest developing economy, and one that on a per capita basis is uh, richer than other large developing economies like India that are also significant emitters. So for that combination of emissions and economic reasons, you're right that China is in a bit of a special position, and it's become increasingly awkward. And I think fundamentally that is um, why uh, you've seen China kind of step out a little bit on its own uh, first when it comes to mitigation uh, about seven years ago and, and now uh, possibly with adaptation going forward. What is China's view and interest in L&D finance? So, uh, and it's worth maybe just saying a little bit more about uh, what loss and damage uh, is in uh, kind of uh, distinction from uh, adaptation. So, um, uh, well, and just as a, as a quick sort of background, or roughly you can sort of divide climate policy uh, into a couple of areas. There's mitigation, which are actions that um, uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, sort of reduce the extent of climate change, so to speak. Um, then you've got adaptation, um, which is finding ways to um, effectively respond or deal with uh, climate change effects um, that are happening or will happen into the future. Um, and then you've got issues like loss and damage, which are sort of related to adaptation, um, but are a little bit different in that they specifically refer to the kind of moral need for uh, the countries that have contributed most to, uh, to causing climate change 
uh, to effectively compensate um, those who have been most negatively uh, affected. And in terms of climate negotiations like this one, the way that that kind of plays out um, is pressure from uh, uh, countries like small island developing states um, that are uh, in some cases at, at, at risk of literally disappearing because of climate change, being wiped off the map, um, pressing uh, large, uh, rich uh, economies like the United States, like the European Union, like Japan, uh, to uh, compensate uh, their people for uh, those, uh, those uh, likely effects. Um, and so uh, on that basis, uh, China's position historically has been, again, in sort of lockstep solidarity with developing countries that um, loss and damage is a legitimate claim um, that developing countries make uh, on, the develop on the developed world, um, and that, the, that it should be a developed country responsibility uh, to compensate those countries for the loss and damage suffered as a result of climate change. What you're seeing now at this COP, which is, uh, again, a little bit new and different, um, is that some countries, and I, I emphasize that at the moment it's, it's, it's uh, a few, it's not a sort of mass uh, movement, but are starting to press China for loss and damage claims because of the sheer scale of its emissions um, and because of its contribution to climate change. Um, and that is something that so far China has, uh, has uh, uh, resisted conceptually, uh, the idea that China as a developing country may in fact have um, responsibility for causing climate change. The position so far has been um, that it's uh, uh, any responsibility lies with the richer uh, developed countries. Has China itself uh, been seeking financing to address loss and damages within its own borders that are that may be a result of uh, of climate change? So that's a great question, Andy, and uh, I I have not uh, seen or heard that um, uh, that China is actually specifically seeking compensation. But I think that would actually be an effective tactic, um, and certainly what China has emphasized, even going back. Um, really to the, the, uh, the start of, uh, uh, of the international climate talks back in the early 90s um, is that China is heavily affected by climate change. And um, the tagline that uh, uh, China has used quite often is that China is one of the countries most exposed, uh, one of the developing countries most exposed to climate change uh, impacts. Um, so I think that argument is implicit in uh, China's uh, climate policy, but it has not been uh, made explicit to my knowledge. Um, but just as a final point, I, I could see that being a, um, a likely response if this pressure uh, from other countries uh, on China continues. And I might just uh, quickly add that at this COP, um, you're, you're, you're starting to hear uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, and uh, countries like Germany uh, also sort of uh, uh, press China for uh, some more ambitious commitments when it comes to adaptation and loss and damage. You know, there has been some deadly flooding in central and northern China this year. Has climate change been identified as a contributing factor in that flooding? Yes, uh, in short. And I mean, it's, you know, it's always worth kind of stating the caveat that specific uh, extreme weather events, you know, the kind of attribution is, um, is quite complicated, but uh, it can be said with some, uh, you know, some certainty that uh, the extreme weather events that China has seen uh, in recent years are uh, linked to climate change. And uh, in addition to severe flooding, uh, China just this past year uh, experienced uh, the most extreme heat wave uh, anywhere in the world in the meteorological record, both in terms of how long it lasted, uh, its intensity, and the number of people in the area affected. So you kind of 
you know, see superlative statistics like that, and it's, it's sort of hard to uh, imagine them uh, not being linked to climate change, particularly when um, all of the models and, and a fair amount of observational uh, science as well uh, uh, makes that linkage between those types of extreme weather events uh, and, uh, and climate change. Scott, a, a final question for you here. How do you see China's role evolving after this COP? I think it's going to depend quite a lot, uh, actually, on uh, whether this pressure that we've seen on China from uh, some uh, developing countries and some developed countries uh, builds uh, and whether uh, there's, uh, you know, sort of a widening uh, gap between China and other developing countries uh, going forward. Um, but I think uh, in a uh, in a sort of ideal world, actually, uh, it will create some pressure on uh, China to increase uh, its commitment to adaptation financing, which um, to date has been pretty limited, um, and it's been mostly through the uh, uh, through existing um, uh, uh, mechanisms for foreign investment um, that uh, that China has established. And you know, one thing that's very clear is that we do need enormous new sums of money for adaptation. So if uh, that can come from, from China or other large developing economies, I think that that, that will have some positive uh, uh, impacts. Um, the other thing to, to note is that this COP uh, is the first one where um, there is uh, uh, formally no uh, U.S.-China dialogue or contact on climate change. Um, uh, Beijing uh, decided to suspend uh, that dialogue and that cooperation in response to uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan uh, back in August. And though there have been numerous informal uh, conversations and contact, that uh, dialogue remains uh, suspended. And so I think a key question going forward is if that suspension um, will be lifted. Uh, I think it will, um, but it's not clear uh, exactly when, um, but, you know, could be as soon as, as the end, uh, before the end of the, um, of the year. But I think that'll be a key, uh, uh, question too, in terms of how China's role evolves, um, whether that, uh, U.S. China cooperation is, uh, revitalized. If it is not, um, I think you'll see China, um, uh, engaging more intensely in, uh, different multilateral groupings. Uh, China has been an active participant in G20 uh, discussions regarding uh, aspects of climate change policy, green finance, for example. Um, so I would I would uh, expect to see uh, China increase its uh, its involvement in multilateral fora like that in response. Scott, thanks very much for talking. Thank you, Andy. Thanks for listening to this special episode of the Energy Policy Now podcast recorded at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Check out Energy Policy Now on the Kleinman Center website on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to keep up with research and events from the Kleinman Center, visit our website. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now and have a great day.